Gather round and listen to tales of great adventure and brave heroes. Tales of daring individuals fighting monsters and claiming treasure. Tales of bards trying to get into the pants of savage beasts to avoid losing a fight. Tales of people drinking beer, eating pizza, and rolling dice. Tales of people losing their minds over the things that happen to people who only exist in their mind. This is Roland Bones, and I am Ryan Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Roland Bones with Ryan Howard the podcast that brings you the best in interviews about Dungeons and & Dragons and TTRPGs, available wherever fine podcasts are found. I am Ryan Howard, your host, and we have a great one today. Ladies and gentlemen, we are speaking to none other than Keith Amon. He is the operator, the owner, the chief contributor to the blog The Monsters Know What They're Doing, which is all about combat tactics and 5th edition D&D, and he is releasing a book in October called The Monsters Know What They're Doing. It was a great conversation. We talked a lot about monster tactics and favorite monsters and just kind of using tactical combat in 5th edition Dungeons & Dungeons & which I know, for one, I have struggled with that a lot in the past. I... I I've been very guilty of making boring encounters, and I'm sure you have too, and Keith has as well, and that's why he has this blog. So we are going to get to that in just a little bit. Uh, first and foremost, uh, just just one plug I want to get out there. Um, you know, we have Keith's book this week, which we will we talk about a lot at the end of the episode, so that that's available. But previous guests on the show, uh, Matt and Joseph from Eldritch Foundry, have announced the official full launch date for Eldritch Foundry. That will be happening on October the 22nd. So we're about a month away from from the launch of Eldritch Foundry, and I am beyond excited to to get in there and mess around with the character creator and create some minis that will come to my house and then I'll paint them, and once I have them painted, once I have the minis, I'll do a review of them. And I'm just, I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this for a long time, and all of you who and I know you've all been anticipating this. They've had a rough go of it, just getting all of the the bugs worked out, making sure that it's going to run smoothly upon opening. Um, We're on the home stretch, Matt and Joseph. You, You guys have had a rough road ahead of you, and I'm glad that you are finally now seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I am beyond excited to review your product and you know i just i wish the the best for you guys um and i wish everyone who listens to the show would would go to eldritch foundry and make a mini on october the 22nd when that site launches uh so with that out of the way i'm actually not going to do a rant this week i've taken my sweet time editing this episode it's been kind of a crazy day here in in my house so uh there's there's not going to be a rant this week we're just going to launch straight into this interview with keith amen of the monsters know what they're doing i know you guys are going to enjoy it i enjoyed talking to him so uh without further ado here it is ladies and gentlemen keith amen on rolling bones i hope you enjoy it
All right, ladies and gentlemen, as promised, uh, tonight on the show we have Keith Amon, who is the creator of The Monsters Know What They're Doing, themonstersknow.com, and is the author of the upcoming book, The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Combat Tactics for Dungeon Masters. Keith, welcome to Rollin' Bones. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, no problem at all. No problem at all. This is something that I've actually kind of been uh, kind of living in the world of, of monster tactics for the past few episodes. I, I kind of wanted to bring on an expert. <laughs> and, well, my friend uh, Tim Mathias from uh, the Knights and Nerds podcast and I were actually recording an episode of his podcast, and he turned me on to your blog. So here we are. So, Keith... I am going to start this show the same way that we always start the show, with these same uh, introductory questions. Uh, first and foremost, how did you get into RPGs and D&D? I uh, was 10 years old, and uh, I picked up a copy of Games Magazine, and it had a description of Dungeons & Dragons in it. And I thought, oh, this sounds really cool, really, you know, it was, it was a completely different game, nothing like anything I'd ever played before, and it sounded amazing. And I showed it to my mom, and I said... I want to get this. How can, can we get our hands on this? And she bought me a copy of the uh, basic set. And we're talking the uh, the blue box basic set from 1979. Mm-hmm. And we got it. We opened it up. We looked at the stuff inside. And we couldn't figure out what to do with it. <laughs> we, we had no idea what we were supposed to do with this material. And, uh, and it sat on the shelf for a really long time. And uh, it wasn't until I got together with some other friends who had figured it out or knew people who had figured it out and, and more or less knew what they were doing that I started getting into it in earnest. I think when I really took the plunge was in uh, the summer after my senior year of high school. And then the next uh, couple of summers after that, I uh, had a group of friends, there were four of us, uh, who played AD&D until uh, I think that the very last summer second edition had come out and we started incorporating some second edition stuff but primarily it was AD&D and uh, we had a thing going where we rotated the dungeon master role among us so my friend Julian went first and played his own character as an NPC uh, and then my friend Matt went played his characters in NPC, and then Burn, and then me. I went last in the rotation. So I had the benefit of seeing three other people showing how they approached the Dungeon Master role before I ever tried it myself. Uh, and I took that experience off to college with me, played uh, D&D first and second edition there, um, and then started drifting away from it. I actually uh, got more into Shadowrun uh, in college than into D&D and kind of left D&D behind. I, I, one of the things I really liked about Shadowrun is the fact that no matter who you were, what you did, you had 10 hit points. Mm-hmm. However experienced you were, however good you were at what you did, you had 10 hit points. Might be harder to take those hit points away from you than to take them away from someone else, but you had 10. And if you lost those 10, you were dying. Um, and that was that was something that had kind of appealed to me after that uh, heroic style D and D, where, you know, if you're high enough level, you get like a fourteenth level dwarf. He can fight half a dozen orcs, drink a glass of poison, jump off the cliff, land at the bottom, get up and fight another dozen orcs down at the bottom, and he's still okay. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, so I, I was with Shadowrun through the first and second editions of that game. Uh, and then I moved back home, hooked up with my friend Julian again, and he had been gaming with some people who had gotten into GURPS. Uh, and so I started playing GURPS with them. And that was pretty much uh, what I stuck with until 5th edition D&D came out. Um, my uh, wife had come to me one day after work and uh, asked me if I would be willing to dungeon master a, a D&D campaign for her and some co-workers. Um, and my first thought was, well, it's, you know, fantasy is fantasy. I'll do it as GURPS. And she's like, no, 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 no. They want to play Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so you need to pick up Dungeons and Dragons. So I'm like, okay. Well, around that time, 5th edition had just recently come out. I think it had been out for maybe a year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I picked it up, started familiarizing myself with it, and was really actually very impressed by how much it had streamlined the essentials of the game. It's it's something that still appeals to me a great deal about 5th edition relative to older editions of D&D is just how streamlined and how internally consistent and interlocking its mechanics are. It makes it very easy to do the kind of thing I'm doing where I can go in and analyze a stat block and know exactly how all the pieces are going to fit together um, and be able to compare them with my experience with how they fit together for other creatures. It really, I feel like it's a gigantic improvement. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned uh, several games in that answer there. Um, <laughs> of, of all the games that you've played, is there one that you think is your favorite? I think D&D 5th Edition has become my favorite. Now, I've I've been pretty out of touch with Shadowrun for several editions. I, I, think, it was, I think it was the best game for me when it was there for me. Um, and I think GURPS was the best thing for me when it was there for me. And I feel like Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition is the best thing for me now. Yeah, it's, it's tastes evolve, preferences evolve, and uh, I guess ultimately the best game is the one that you're enjoying playing with the people you're with, right? I mean, um, I, there's still a lot of things I like and appreciate about GURPS, but I'm not playing it right now. I am playing 5e, so... Now, going all the way back to those early days of playing 1st uh, Edition, uh, do you remember the first character that you played? I do. It was a half-elf magic... No, it was a valley elf magic user named Packwood. And I actually, when I when it came my turn to DM uh, our group and play him as an NPC, uh, I actually uh, had him do a face heel turn and ended up killing him off. <laughs> Nice. I was tired of playing him. I wanted to play something else. <laughs> that's actually that's that's actually a cool idea for a campaign. Just have people uh, partway through switch DMs and have that person's player end up being the bad guy. If you could do that like on purpose from the beginning, that'd be a pretty pretty cool execution. If you were play, yeah. If you had it planned out from the beginning. Yep. From kind of reading your your blog and and the the angle that you've taken on your content, I, I think I can guess this. But in your own words, describe kind of your play style as a as a GM and as a player. 
Ha. People probably would not guess it from the blog, but I am a uh, I'm a heart player, 100%. I'm not a spade player. I'm not a club player. I am I am what they used to call in the old taxonomy a real role player. Uh, and one of the reasons that I got into the tactics is because well, I mentioned this group I, I always used to play with. Julian is still a very very close friend of mine. We've been friends for 30 years or more, and um, he has this brilliant creative imagination. It's just a, a wellspring of wild ideas, and I don't. I have creativity, but it's not that kind of creativity. He creates things, I remix things. And um, my response to not being able to, not just not having the kind of mind that comes up with these amazing things from scratch, uh, my way of compensating for that is always to try to make everything as believable as possible, as internally consistent as possible, as detailed as possible. I always, I go for verisimilitude over uh, epic imagination. And so when I began writing the blog, it was as a response to the fact that I felt like some of the first few battles that I had run with our 5e group, uh, we were doing the starter set, Lost Mine of Fandelver. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like some of the early battles had not really felt right. They didn't they didn't feel satisfying enough and I was kind of digging into why did my goblins not really feel like goblins? That sort of thing. What what should goblins feel like? I didn't really know because you know when I started playing back in the day, the differences between goblins and kobolds and orcs and lizard folk and gnomes, all those all those mook races, you know, all those mook monsters. The differences were really just kind of a matter of numbers mostly. They weren't strongly flavored, or if they were, I just wasn't old enough and cognitively developed enough to discern the differences. So, you know, first I'm thinking my goblin combat wasn't very satisfying. And then I'm thinking, well, what should a goblin combat feel like? And then I started studying the stat block and trying to get into the head of a goblin. If these are the things I know how to do, how am I going to use those? Because I'm a goblin. I evolved to be a goblin. I'm going to know how to do this stuff. It's going to be instinctive to me. I don't have to think about it on the fly. I've got a modus operandi that has worked for me and my species for as long as anyone can remember. That's what I'm going to do. And so, you know, from there, it was just the detective work to figure out, okay, well, what is that then? You know, what is it like to be a goblin? Well, you do this little uh, exercise of analysis and you figure out what it's like to be a goblin. Goblins do this. Now, Keith... If you can possibly pick between them, what would you say is your fondest RPG memory? Ooh. We've had some really good ones in this most recent 5e campaign. I think my... I think my fondest memory is of a uh, an incident that happened in a side quest that I wrote for my wife's character. She's playing a dwarf ranger who left her home village, which she had been the chief of, but she didn't think she was going to be a very good chief, so she bailed, and but kept checking in for, for news about what was going on there, and heard that things were not going well so she went back to check it out her younger sister who who was barely age of majority was 
chief in her stead and was having trouble managing everything. So the village is under siege by goblinoids. There's been a mudslide. They're having some other problems. You know, it's it's just a, a kind of a cascade failure situation. And so they're going in to try to to clean up some of the mess. And uh, while they're there, the village is besieged by a bunch of goblins led by hobgoblins who are also using uh, mangonels, primitive catapults, to attack the village. And so one of the first encounters was this attack on the village while they're there. So um, they have created some uh, improvised incendiary projectiles, and one of them gets launched straight through the roof of the Temple of Baranar and sets it on fire. So I, I, I kind of... When I when I wrote this bit, I was thinking, okay, our druid will finally get a chance to use this create and destroy water spell, which she always preps and mm-hmm. always wants to use and never gets to use. And wouldn't you know it, the one time this happens, she didn't prep it because she never got to use it. So <laughs> of course. So she's sitting there watching the temple burn. There's nothing she can do about it. So she decides that instead of trying to do anything there, she's going to uh, cast daylight so that the characters without dark vision can see because the siege takes place at night. Mm-hmm. And um, so she casts daylight on her shield, and then she wild shapes into a giant eagle, flies over to the palisade wall, and then, you know, is support spellcaster over there. Mm-hmm. So the next day, there's a scene in which the dwarves of the village are burying their dead from the battle, and our ranger, who's from the town, notices that instead of using the usual epithets for Baranar, they're calling her Tuzmadar. Tuzmadar means firebird and they're saying what why is why are they calling her this well and a bunch of witnesses to last night's events swear that when the temple caught fire they saw baronar herself rise from the flames in the form of a radiant eagle and go to aid her people <laughs> on the wall and my wife the, the ranger turns to the druids player and says you broke my people's religion <laughs> I think I think that has been my single favorite moment from our uh, entire campaign so far. Oh God, that reminds me of of two different stories that happened in in two different campaigns. One of them, we had a bard who was obsessed with the spell. It, it was the same situation as the the create water. Mm-hmm. Uh, she always prepped the spell heat metal, but it never came up. Mm-hmm. And so one time, j- she just kept going on and on about how much she loved heat metal. And so one time, we go into what will what my group colloquially called the murder house because it was it was basically like a haunted mansion and it was a whole bunch of stuff that was designed to almost kill us by our dm and so she's fighting this animated suit of armor and she tries to cast heat metal well because it's a construct and there's not anything inside the armor heat metal has no effect on it there's nothing for it to burn yeah and she got pissed and then another time and uh i just had this guy on the show and and we just discussed this uh one of my players was playing a uh, dragonborn fighter with a very low intelligence who decided that he was going to go scavenge for mushrooms and he did not roll very well in a survival check and so I had him roll again to see what kind of mushrooms he found and he got somewhere in the middle so I decided he was going to have a psychedelic experience. He wanted me to describe the psychedelic experience so I told him that basically he saw all of us playing D&D and he then told me that he was just about going to multi-class into cleric so that he could play a cleric of Ryan. (laughs) 
To which warlock I said, Joe, I don't know apt. how to feel about Yes, yes, Warlock would definitely be more apt. It was like, Joe, on one hand, that's hilarious. On the other hand, no. But Keith, we, we have all, at, at different times, shared the table with a whole bunch of different people. Uh, some of them great and some of them not so great. And some of the worst ones we reserve a, a specific title for, that being That Guy. So, Keith, do you have a That Guy story? Honestly, I don't. I have been very very fortunate uh in the groups that i've played with that uh we have all for the most part been pretty tight um even even when we weren't that tight we we still you know played well with others played well as a group i i honestly have never been in a group that had a player who just couldn't play well with others um now i have sat in you know once or twice with groups where I just felt like, oh, the, the, the way these people play is not the way I want to play. Uh, and, you know, just didn't come back. But that that is, that's not the same thing. That's, that's you know, matter of taste to each his own. And yeah, I, I've, my, my role-playing gaming career has been wonderfully free of problem players. Now, is that a, a product of playing mostly with people that you know beforehand? Yes. I Well, I don't know for a fact, but I do know that I play with people mostly that I know beforehand or that, you know, that come with references. Like when mm-hmm. our GURPS group, um, I didn't know any of them beforehand, but Julian knew them all beforehand. Uh, the uh, Our current 5E group, uh, I barely knew a couple of them, but my wife had worked with them all. So it was, uh, yeah, everyone, everyone was vouched for by someone else. It wasn't uh, a pickup group. It wasn't uh, people who fell together at a game store or met at a con. It was people who knew each other and wanted to play the game together and uh, had the kind of established personal relationships that I think just naturally make people more considerate toward one another. And honestly, that's that's the way to do it. I, I've been fortunate myself. I've not had any problem players, and I met my group. We were all strangers when we started playing together, and uh, that that first group that I that I was in, we were all we all got along well. Everyone was well adjusted, and it was really a miracle that we were able to pull all that together with a bunch of strangers meeting off of Reddit. So, Keith, if you could make an RPG system for any fictional universe, or update an older RPG system with a more modern rule set, what would it be? That is a really tough question. Um, and uh, I, you know, I. I heard I don't know if you gave me a heads up that you were going to ask that question or if I heard you ask it to somebody else when I was listening to some back episodes, but I was trying to think of what my answer to that question would be, and I could not figure it out. Um, Because a lot of the things that I would say, people have already created the, uh, uh, the systems for them, like... Um, oh, Firefly. Firefly. Well, there's a Firefly RPG. Oh, The Expanse. They just came out with The Expanse. So, um, yeah, I honestly, I think any answer I could give, somebody has beaten me to the punch. Um, and as far as rule sets go, you know, I I remember every edition that sh- of Shadowrun that came out, people complained about. And then when they released the ed- new edition that was supposed to fix the flaws in the old edition, people complained about how they fixed the flaws and it seemed like no one was ever satisfied with it and Mm -hmm. i lost track i don't know what they've done with it since then i actually thought that with the exception of decking which everyone understood was just a uh, a a big speed bump that had to be worked around i thought the second edition's rules were pretty good uh, 
across the board. Um, I, I certainly liked the way it handled um, magic, and in particular, how it handled creating your own spells under its magic system. Did it in a very systematic way that I really like, and uh, I wish that there were similarly systematic ways of developing new magic spells uh, in, uh, in other systems that I've played. Because um, you can write a new spell in 5th edition, but they keep such a tight lid on the actual math of how they, uh, how they calculate game balance in 5e that, that at, you can, you know, it, it takes tons and tons and tons of playtesting to arrive at a reasonable guess that you know the level is where it should be it's um i, I really wish you know D D fifth edition has the uh encounter building system the two different encounter building systems the dmg one and the xanathar's one mm-hmm. um which are supposedly two different ways of expressing the same math but they do occasionally give different results like uh at first level um if you have one-to-one players versus goblins. Xanathars will call that a balanced encounter. DMG will call it deadly. So, um, you know, and and uh, and the classes are quite well balanced, but then if you're trying to homebrew a new subclass or something like that, um, you can make some pretty good guesses uh, about how powerful things should be, but only Wizards of the Coast knows for sure mathematically how good they should be and uh that is that is a hood i would be able i would love to be able to lift up and look under i don't know if that actually i don't know if that actually answered your question but that's just where my thoughts took me i'm tired (laughs) fair enough now keith this is the last of the introductory questions then we're gonna dig into some uh specifics on the the stuff that you do uh but if you could put anything and i do mean anything on a t-shirt what would it be i'm just gonna quote from elvis costello what's so funny about peace love and understanding it's a fantastic song i love that song so keith uh, in in hearing your story you actually kind of caught me by surprise um with kind of this focus on tactics i assumed that you had at some point been a big fan of specifically fourth edition but it sounds like you completely missed fourth edition am, am i accurate in saying that uh i not only missed fourth edition i missed three and a half and three and and I missed a lot of two. I now I would have to go back and look this up, but I think that the Wilderness Survival Guide was a second edition book, not a f- not an AD and D first edition book. Um, the Wilderness Survival Guide, which by the way was a fantastic supplement, and I would love to see a fifth edition updating of it. Um, that was the last D and D book I remember buying before I kind of wandered off from D and D and uh you know went into my years playing other things so yeah i i never played any of those intervening editions but i did um do a little bit of wargaming in high school and and afterward and you know i've always liked strategy games although interestingly until recently i've never been that good at them it took me a long time to really learn how to think strategically and to learn how to think tactically and to understand the difference between the two. And um, I attribute a lot of that ability to reshape how I thought about these things um, 
from going to graduate school and getting an education degree. The first, uh, the first game that I came back to and realized, uh, I'm sorry, the first, the first game that I came back to with the new ability to know how to learn, how to approach the aspects of the game that I didn't understand was chess. I was a bad chess player. Oh, I was so bad. I'm still not that great. My my ELO rating has has peaked in the uh, mid 1100s and is definitely not there now because I haven't been playing for a few years. But um, but that's still way better than I than it was five years ago or ten years ago before I came to the game with the understanding of how to study it. And some of the things that I've learned in studying chess tactics have been things that I could then apply to tactics in other areas. There's a really good uh, chess instructional author named Dan Heisman, and he's got a book, and I've got it on my shelf behind me, uh, A Guide to Chess Improvement. Fantastic book. Anyone out there who's into chess and doesn't feel like they're good enough and wants to get better, get Dan Heisman's A Guide to Chess Improvement. It, it's just the encyclopedia of everything you need to know. Um, one of the things he presents is a, a thinking heuristic. Like, these are the things you should be thinking about on every move. And one of the first things is, what is the worst thing my opponent can do to me? Can he check me? Can he capture any of my material? Does he have a tactical threat against me? Um, and that's where you have to start your thinking. If my opponent can check me, then does that mean my opponent has a forcing sequence against me? And if my opponent has a forcing sequence, does that mean I'm in big trouble? I've got to head that off. Any move I choose has to address my opponent's most serious threat. I can just cross off my list any candidate move that doesn't address that threat because I have to assume that whatever the worst thing is that my opponent can do to me, my opponent will do to me. And anything less than that is hope chess. It's just taking a flyer and and hoping that my opponent is not going to make their best move. And that's a sloppy way to play. It's the way I played before I started studying chess with the mentality of someone who knew how to study. And um, it's just the single biggest mistake that, that novice players make is is not rigorously asking themselves what's the worst thing my opponent can do. But it also studying chess also introduced me to the idea of the tactical combination, which you know people who uh, it's weird we're talking about chess now on a D and D podcast, but. People who show you how all the pieces move, tell you how to set up the board, um, and say, okay, now you know how to play chess. Let's play a game. They're lying. You don't know how to play chess yet because there are basics beyond the basics that they haven't taught you. And the the, the most important basics beyond the basics are uh, basic tactical combinations, pins, skewers, forks, attraction, distraction, uh, double attacks, and uh, discovered attacks. And uh, if you don't know these things, you haven't really learned how to play the game. It's, it's, it's fundamental knowledge because these are the tools with which your opponent is going to try to dismantle you. And they're the tools with which you're going to try to dismantle your opponent. And so understanding about those, you know, for, for those who aren't privy to all the chess jargon, a tactic in chess is a trick, not in the sense of a deception, but like in the sense of a, a gymnastic trick or a skateboard trick. It's a 
it's something you can do using technique that works reliably and that delivers you some kind of benefit, whether it's a one game or a gain of material or some kind of improvement in your position on the board, what have you. It's just, it's, it's you do this and then you do this. And if your opponent doesn't head it off, then you have gained something from it. So that led me, when I began playing 5e, to notice in particular how two things interact to provide that kind of synergy. One is advantage and disadvantage, and the other is conditions. And I think it's really kind of surprising that the uh, that the player's handbook puts conditions in an appendix because they are so central to the tactical game of D&D combat they if if you're not making full use of those conditions then you're not really getting the most out of your combat abilities the conditions are everything because if if you have something that you can do applying a condition to an enemy or taking advantage of a condition that an enemy is under to give yourself advantage then you're missing an opportunity absolutely i've had a few players and these are people who who do like fifth edition and have played a lot of it they they sometimes complain that fifth edition combat is repetitive and boring and i do feel like after having studying after having studied it rather and after hearing you say that that what it comes down to is them not understanding uh, the condition system and and that not being kind of put at the forefront of combat kind of where it should be because i mean like you said it, it's in an appendix at the back of the book and very few people know those conditions off the top of their heads yeah it's a very odd place in the book to put it in my opinion and uh boy howdy do i know those by heart now <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh, it is it is well it it's so crucial to understanding how the monsters are going to act Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's really just important information for the the player characters as well because you know in addition to the monsters know what they're doing I also wrote the ebook Live to Tell the Tale uh, which is the uh, flip side of the coin it's for it's for the players and uh, I had been getting all kinds of comments on the blog um, about how oh this stuff is great I got my first total party kill with it and I'm like. Oh, <laughs> God, that's not what I meant this to do at all. Mm -hmm. I didn't want you to go out and kill, you know, just murder your players with it. I just wanted you to make the combat more interesting. You know, it's 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 still up to you, the DM, to balance it. But, you know, then it's like, well, okay, I made this monster smarter, but then my players didn't know how to deal with it. And so I felt a, a moral obligation just out of fairness to, mm-hmm. to, okay, here's something to help the players even the score against these monsters that I've unleashed upon the world. But, uh, and, and that's one thing I go into in Live to Tell the Tale is just how important advantage and disadvantage are and just how important it is to understand the conditions, how they, how you can use them against your opponents and how your opponents are going to use them against you. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to, to starting a, a blog like this, I guess I'm trying to kind of dive into your motivation here. Did you want to share your discovery with people or did you, I guess in a way, feel like this is something that 5th edition has de-emphasized and you wanted to kind of re-emphasize it in 
in your own content? Honestly, when I first started writing this blog, I, I did so without ambition. I Honestly, I can't even remember why I decided to write a blog. I don't remember why I decided this topic in particular. I do remember that my first uh, forays into analyzing monster tactics came about because I was I was dissatisfied with how they'd played out at my own table and I wanted to figure this stuff out for myself and then once I figured it out for myself I thought eh maybe other people want to read this too and I was um I was between jobs I was not uh, I was trying to get a photography business off the ground actually but that was going kind of slowly I, I still needed to uh, build up my portfolio more and and I, I wanted to keep my hand in the writing game uh, because I used to work full-time uh, as an editor and uh, for part of the time I worked as an editor I was also a writer mm-hmm. and uh, I just wanted to you know they, they when 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 you're a writer they tell you you should write something every day and so I thought well here's something I can write about I'm thinking about this I may as well write about it too and put it out where people can see it if if people benefit from it great and I I, I didn't really give a whole lot of thought to anything except just trying to share my understandings and publish on a decent regular schedule which when i first was writing blog i was doing great i had two weeks of material in the can and was publishing something every weekday um i i wish i could keep up a schedule like that now Mm -hmm. but um i did not have any sense of how much it had taken off until I began seeing uh, occasional spikes in my traffic. And every time I saw one of those spikes and looked to see where the traffic was coming from, it was from Reddit. It was from uh, D&D Next or DM Academy or I got a lot of uh, links from Matt Colville's subreddit. Mm-hmm. I have no idea if Matt Colville even knows who I am, but his <laughs> his fans apparently like my blog. And uh, and that's where a lot of my traffic was coming from, uh, was various D&D-related uh, subreddits. And when people were starting to say things, you know, Somebody would ask a question like, uh, how should I run an Otyug encounter or whatever? And um, somebody else would say, go read this blog. It will tell you that I began to realize, oh, my God, people are actually using this as reference material. And that that definitely gave me a warm and fuzzy feeling inside to know that that I was actually tapping into some latent demand. I didn't know if there would be any demand for this. And turns out, yeah, there is. And uh so I'm really glad that I've been able to provide that for people. And, and it's kind of amazing that I seem to have cornered the market on it. I'm not really aware of, of anyone else who's doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I mean, occasionally you'll see um, videos on on YouTube about this. Uh, Luke Hart from the DM Layer, who I had on the show a couple episodes ago, he did a video about building encounters and making a lot of it kind of focused on making sure that your players don't have the upper hand in the action economy but with some stuff about layers and and tactics and stuff like that and then uh cody from a channel called taking 20 has a series of videos called kill your party with <laughs> insert monster mm-hmm. and james heck at, at D beyond um I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, James. If I'm not, I'm sorry. But uh, he'll do a deep dive on a monster from time to time. And uh, 
but he'll he'll discuss the tactics, but he'll also be discussing the lore and the role playing angles as well as the the tactics. And uh, it, it was it was funny. Um, he did one on the Kraken that was so close to the uh, the, uh, the the tactics that I had come up with the Kraken, and it was honestly totally a coincidence. He and I had just followed our thoughts down the exact same paths, like to the point where we it had occurred to both of us that a Kraken who flings someone is going to try to fling them at a solid surface mm-hmm. and that if you don't know how to pull in the dot pull into a dive the surface of the water is a solid surface mm-hmm. uh, you know we had both had that same thought and it was it was kind of remarkable but so yeah he, he does that but he does it in a broader context and he certainly doesn't do it exclusively switching gears a little bit but kind of staying on a similar subject uh, Keith do you have a favorite monster I have a sentimental favorite I do well there are there are two one is the goblins because mm-hmm. when they they were the first monster I looked at and when I looked at them I realized they were so much more than I had understood them to be goblins are shifty little bastards mm-hmm. they are they are sneaky they are slippery they're opportunistic and they've just got that neat little that that nimble escape um just really helps them become a real menace in any kind of environment with a lot of visual obstacles um and so discovering that oh goblins are not just reskinned kobolds they've actually got a core competency which they can make uh extensive use of that epiphany really set me off on my path and uh and and so i like them for that reason and that's one of the reasons why they're on the cover of the book but the other one is the bodak i don't know what edition the bodak was introduced in it was not part of ad and d but uh it's in volo's guide to monsters now and the bodak came along just when i had run into some territory with a uh a quest that i was running for my group where they were trying to recruit a barbarian tribe to uh help them out in a in an effort against this warlord blah 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 blah. so in order to win the trust of this barbarian tribe they have to do something for them they say we want you to go take care of this spook and they don't have any influence they don't have any hard information about this spook other than people who have gone out to hunt it don't come back and for the level that my players were at the time the bodak just presented itself as the perfect foil and i, and I love the kind of uh damned if you do damned if you don't aspect of how it's features interact where if you want to fight this thing you know you can't get too close to it you can't look directly at it there, there's just so many um so many things about it that make it hard to deal with obviously since it's got you know a finite challenge rating and you know if you pitch it to the player's level they will find a way to deal with it but uh i took a an english course in college in fantasy and magic and one of the things that uh that course touched on was horror and how one of the key elements of horror is that the characters don't know what the antagonist can do to them that keeping things unknown you don't know what it can do to you until it does those things to you 
is essential to any kind of horror scenario. Um, and so the Bodak presented itself as a good horror creature because it wasn't something they could recognize right away. It, it just reduced two members of the party to zero hit points immediately and nobody knew how it did it and it was just like oh my god it 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 actually scared the players and that was pretty cool i've i've had the players occasionally think this is going to be a very difficult fight but i haven't actually had them scared more than a couple of times and the bodak fight scared them even though they were at a level where they were perfectly well equipped to take it on so i consider that a big success absolutely so tell us a little bit about this book. What Specifically, um, what's the content of the book going to be? Because I know if you were to take your blog posts and just turn them into a book, that would be a very long book. It is a very long book. It's more than 500 <laughs> pages. And um, it is essentially a com- – it's, it's mainly a compilation of the blog content aimed at people who own the monster manual and and want to know how to run the monsters in it um so it doesn't cover any of the monsters from volos or mordenkainen's it is it's strictly monster manual oriented but it does include uh monsters from the monster manual that i did not analyze on the blog so there is a, there is content that's exclusive to the book. People had asked me for a long time, do you ever intend to compile all these analyses into a book? And for the longest time, I said, no, no, I'm not really going to do that now. Um, and then an editor from Simon & Schuster called me and said, hey, <laughs> we'd like to compile all this stuff into a book. Are you interested? And <laughs> I'm like, to be honest, when, when I was first approached, I thought I was being hoaxed. I was so skeptical. I... Mm-hmm. Like, did some research... Is this a real person who signed this thing that he sent through the contact form? Turns out it was. He was... Uh, the editor was a D&D player who read my blog and had read Live to Tell the Tale. And so, uh, yeah, we put it together. And uh, I, I, I have to thank him for just being relentless at, at sniffing out my mistakes because I am not... <laughs> I'm not infallible. And when I make mis- when people call out my mistakes on the blog, I like to be transparent about it and leave the mistaken material up, struck out with the corrections next to it. Because it, you know, this is a learning process for me as it is for the readers. And so, it, you know, I think it, it it's useful for for keeping you humble to to know that I don't get all these things right the first time. I screw up. I overlook details and. The you know the more the more scrutiny these things come under the the better they become. So mm-hmm. um, having a uh, having a professional book editor, you know I have been a professional journalistic editor, but I I've never been a, a like a, a content editor, a lead editor for a book. Having someone like that uh, go through all my material with a fine tooth comb, someone who also plays D&D 5th edition and knows what I'm talking about and you know and and notices things that are in my blind spots um I think just uh improved the quality of it dramatically um there are there are definitely uh monsters in in the book um who are improved from their condition on the blog uh the kuatoa come immediately to mind my my kuatoa article on the blog is a little bit of a mess and yeah uh anyone out there if if you want to know how to run kuatoa forget the blog by the book 
Absolutely. <laughs> the book gets it right. I mean, anyone out there uh, should buy the book anyway. And uh, this this book, just looking at the website here, uh, you, you've been endorsed by uh, some, some heavy hitters in, in the realm of D&D, shall we say. I, I'm, I'm seeing an endorsement from Joe Manganiello, Matthew Lillard, and R.A. Salvatore. Let me, uh, let me how tell did that you, come about? The publisher asked me to supply uh, a list of people who should receive advanced copies and, uh, you know, for, for the purposes of providing promotional blurbs, which I did. None of those people were on my list. My publisher <laughs> aimed way higher than it ever occurred to me to aim. Uh, when the first one came in from uh, uh, Joe Manganello, I'm like, oh my god, that's a fantastic get. I didn't even think of sending one to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then and then uh, Salvatore comes in, and I'm like, really? Oh my god. <laughs> And uh, and then uh, Lillard was the most recent one. <laughs> like, jeez. Mm-hmm. And and I had I had actually uh, heard uh, I I had gotten word at one point that Matthew Lillard was a reader of my blog, but I I didn't know to what extent to believe it. So I mm-hmm. yeah, it wasn't something I like you know held close to my chest. Um, oh, Matthew Lillard reads my blog. I I <laughs> like you know I I'm like well maybe he does if he does great whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to get an endorsement from it was terrific. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't ask for endorsements from any of those people. That was all my publisher. They get all the credit. Well, they they certainly brought in some some great names to to endorse your book. Yeah, they they did. And just just mm-hmm. for the record, I said Simon and Schuster, but you know that's a big umbrella. The actual. Uh, imprint that the book is coming out under is saga press which is a science fiction and fantasy arm so the book comes out on october the 29th yes and it is available looks like at most every major retailer are is the book currently available for pre-order yes it is uh, and I encourage everyone to uh, go to IndieBound.org and uh, try to find a friendly local independent bookseller to order it from. Uh, independent booksellers are the pillars of the literary community, and they really deserve your support. So if you've got a uh, local indie bookstore that you can support, please, by all means, do so. You know, Obviously, if you want to buy my book, buy it from whoever you want to buy it from but uh lots of love to the indie bookstores out there i used to work for one so um i i really want to give them all the support i can do you have any plans to kind of make the uh, make the rounds in the conventions i'm going to do what i can i will be at game hole con for part of the weekend i won't that's in madison wisconsin i uh won't be able to attend uh thursday or friday because my friendly local bookstore is uh tentatively hosting a uh, an author event for me on friday november 1st so next morning i'm gonna hop in the car and drive up to madison and spend saturday and sunday at game hole con I'm still looking to see whether my personal finances will support a trip to PAX Unplugged. I'm hoping, but we'll see. I'm a little, I'm a little afraid that by the time the money comes in, I'm uh, <laughs> there aren't going to be any hotel rooms left. Mm-hmm. But um, after that, the only one I'm pretty sure I will be at is I'm, I'm not missing Gen Con next year for the world. Me neither. I, I missed it this year, and 
I have yet to go to a Gen Con, but I've heard nothing but good things, and I, I really want to go. I have been to Gen Cons in the past. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, I think I've been to two or three of them. I can't remember. Um, Origins used to be my my main convention because I was uh, very much into board gaming as mm-hmm. well as role playing gaming. But um, I had meant to go to Gen Con this last year, and in the end, I just couldn't justify it, um, in large part because I have a newborn daughter. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, so so this year, it, it just wasn't in the cards, but next year, I'm definitely going. Keith, as we're wrapping up here, uh, do you have anything else you want to promote? Well, I do want to put a word in for a, uh, a dice maker. Uh, called Ice Cream Dice. Um, the uh, the original idea was that he was designing uh, a series of dice that were all based on ice cream flavors: Neapolitan, mint chip, uh, orange creamsicle. You know, and uh, sorry, that might be a trademark that I'm not supposed to use, but whatever. <laughs> and yeah, he had a Kickstarter. It was big deal, and he just got nearly wiped out because uh, some hacker posed as his manufacturing supplier and sent him a bogus invoice which he paid not realizing that it did not come from his actual manufacturer uh and it almost laid his business out flat he needs help getting back on his feet so go to uh it's it's icecreamdice.com so go to icecreamdice.com and check out his wares if you like any of it place an order with him he needs the business and uh let's do what we can to help him get back on his feet because that is a lousy thing to happen to anybody Keith, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Uh, Thank you for agreeing to do this. Once again, everyone, Keith's blog can be found at themonstersknow.com. The blog is called The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Ready to Use Tactics for D&D 5e. And the book, which will be available on October the 29th, is The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Combat Tactics for Dungeon Masters. Pre-order it now. Like Keith said, go through an, an independent local bookstore if you can. If not, the other retailers will do. Next week, uh, we are not going to have a guest. I did not get a guest for next week because I am going to dedicate next week to a former guest on the show, uh, DM Dave and his uh, his product, Broadsword Magazine. Yep, I will be doing a full review for next week's episode of Broadsword Number 1. I'm hoping to have my physical copy by then. If not, I'll just review it from the PDF. But I'm dedicating an entire episode to Broadsword Number 1. Dave, don't worry. I'm not going to eviscerate you. I, I think you've... <coughs> dramatically underestimated your abilities Dave but until then remember next time you are surrounded by hobgoblins and you hear the sound of beating wings just remember yes yes they do have a manticore I'll see you next time